you open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, as we continue to study this letter, Paul is writing from prison to churches, as we explained in chapter 1, this is to be a, a foundational letter to every Christ-following church. Paul is aware of that as he writes and communicates that to us. We are in one of the stepping into a new stage of this letter. As, as Paul begins this letter, he, he begins in heaven. He begins from God's perspective. Here is his plan. Here is his offer that before the creation of the world, he has chosen you to be in Christ. Everything that is predestined is predestined before creation. So before creation, God knows creation. He knows every choice, every person, every conception, everything about. And he has predetermined within that knowledge that he can choose you before the creation of the world, knowing that you will choose his son as Lord that he has lavished upon everyone who does, every blessing in the heavenly realms, that all that God has, he has determined in advance to be given to those who make Christ Jesus their Lord. So he, he steps from that into the destitute place where he finds each human being that is old enough, comprehensive enough, to determine their sinful state, their need for a savior, their submission to a Lord, and he transitions in the second stage of this letter from this lost, dead, disobedient, deserving of wrath position to this born again, saved by grace, through faith, to do the works which he planned in advance for us to do. Therefore, we will begin in verse 11. He is, he is taking us as if saying, okay, if this is you, then we move forward. So Paul in, in Hebrews, we studied that book not too long ago. In chapter 4, he explains that if, if you look at what he's explaining in the, the, the verses in chapter, in I believe it's Hebrews 4, um, where he's explaining that there's a lot of people involved in that understanding of who God is, understanding of what his offer is, believing that it is true, and then when you step into the place of, okay, here's his plan for you, you start to lose people. And he explains in Hebrews that when you lose those people who have clearly heard the message, clearly heard the offer, clearly decided, I'm here, but I'm not here for a Lord, then those people begin to fall away. He explains then in Hebrews chapter 5, he says that, okay, if you've had Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, then it's time to move on. And the reality is that most church resides in, isn't God glorious? Isn't he gracious? Isn't he good? Look at this beautiful day. Look at all he has done. And they never step into his plan. So Chris reads this glorious prayer um, and 
a memorable, powerful prayer, which is a church prayer. It's not an individual prayer. It applies to individuals within the church. So he, he begins that prayer for this reason. What reason, Paul? From Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 16, the doctrinal foundation of the truth in God's word is found. He will explain beginning in chapter 11 or chapter 2 and verse 11 today all the way through verse 16 of chapter 4 the church. So he will start with God's plan transitioning from if you've chosen him as Lord, here are the works he's planned in advance for you to do and here's where you are to do them. So in the middle of this church foundational doctrinal truth given in this book called Ephesians he gives this amazing prayer. And he says, for this reason, because of the church, because of what he has done and how he has designed and he's included you. And in the verse 15, Chris read that where every family derives its name, he's talking about church families. So every verse that Paul gives us about our spiritual gifts, about our serving one another. The another is in a body, a family of believers. His plan is that if you've accepted him and cho chosen him as Lord, now the church is your plan. So he explains in, in Hebrews that let's, let's move on. Yes, we all agree. Yes, it is the Lord. It is by grace. It is your saved. It is unto works. Let's get to the works. Let's get to what we are here for. He has died for us to follow him and to share in his kingdom and to serve him. So when we begin now in verse 11 of chapter 2, he begins to transition from individuals coming into relationship with God to forming church and understanding God's predestined plan from the beginning was that Jews and Gentiles would come together and form one body, and they would form local bodies of believers, and in heaven where each family, this is the family, derives its name, he gives this prayer to understand how wide, how deep, and how long is the love of Christ. You can only do that together. So we step into that. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, help us to understand the patriarchs, creation, Gentiles, and all that you have magnificently planned before creation even happened. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come into chapter 2 and verse 11. Actually, we're going to look at a little bit of what I just talked about. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. For this reason, Chris read, for, for the reason of the church. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter is going to speak something that I don't think he understands yet, and Jesus will explain that to us. Matthew 16. He is introducing this plan of the church 
that the Old Testament prophets did not know about, did not understand, the, the plan of the church, the design of the church, the purpose of the church will not be understood until the Apostle Paul begins to write letters like his letter to the Ephesians. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples in verse 15, But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus explains to him, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. So somehow the father in heaven, like he does with Caiaphas, when Caiaphas says it is better for one to die than for a nation to die, Caiaphas is not a believer, but the Holy Spirit speaks through him because he is the high priest. So somehow Peter expresses something that Peter himself doesn't understand yet. He believes it, but he doesn't understand it. So God the Father, probably through the Holy Spirit, reveals to Peter, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And the reason he is bringing those words through Peter's lips is because he is laying the foundation of the church and the foundation of the church is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So he's beginning to explain the church to them. Verse 18, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So his disciples were to know that he is the Messiah. They were not to proclaim the plan of the church yet. He says in the Greek to Peter that I have, it has been revealed through your lips from my Father that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that you, Peter, in the Greek, you Petra, you Petros with an S, and on this Petra, rock. So he says, you as an individual pebble, if you're going to use the Greek language, are going to understand that on this Petra, this cornerstone, this foundation, that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation being laid for the church. And you as a stone will build on this church. So religion will take that to say it is built on Peter, Jesus is explaining what Peter understands is that the foundation is the Messiah. So if you turn, if you look there in your notes at a verse we will look at later, 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So on this rock, this Petra, this cornerstone, this foundation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Paul would write later in 1 Corinthians 3.11, there is no other foundation. There is no other way to build a church than on Jesus Christ himself. He is the foundation. So as we turn back to Ephesians, you could scroll down later um, into verse 20 where he says the same thing. 
He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. So a cornerstone to a builder is the starting point for a building. So if the building is going to be square, everything is going to be squared off of the cornerstone. He is the stone. He is the rock. He is the Petra. He is the surface, if you want to look at it that way, that the church is built on. That he is the Messiah, meaning he is the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, the anointed king. It is him, and he will give his life for the church, and he will give his life into the church, and he is explaining that ahead of time to his disciples who don't fully understand. Verse 11 of Ephesians 2, as we pick up the text, Therefore, in other words, in response to what he has just said. What has he just said? It is by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he planned in advance for us to do. So to do good works so he had planned in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world, so there are groups there that he is distinguishing from Gentiles until Christ came. It is important to note, he never separated Gentiles. He never pushed them away. He brought Israel into existence because of the patriarchs, and they were to be a demonstration to the world of Yahweh, of Almighty God. They were to, if obedient, always blessed, always fruitful. Their animals would never lose young when they were born. They would always be blessed in their crops, and the world would see that's because they follow Yahweh. They set aside the Sabbath, which is set aside in creation, to demonstrate to the world that he can do more in six days with him than in seven days without him. So, Paul is explaining that as far as the patriarchs go, as far as Israel, you as Gentiles were not included. As far as Christ and what he is planning to build, you needed to be brought into it. He's explaining that. We're going through that on Wednesday night in um, Romans 11, that, that you're a wild olive shoot grafted into a cultivated olive tree. And he's explaining that here, that he explained earlier last week, your position as a lost person, you are dead, disobedient, deserving of wrath, and you come to, my chains are gone, I've been set free. I am gloriously saved, following Yahweh, created to do good works, which he planned in advance for us to do. Now he's explaining peoples with an S. You were not in with the patriarchs, you are not in Christ's plan as a nation, 
But God does have a plan, and he's going to begin in chapter 2 to unveil what has always been his plan. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you weren't distanced because God cut you out. You weren't distanced because you didn't get to be born an Israelite. You were distanced because you weren't in Christ. Now, Gentile, in Christ, I want to, you to know, Paul says, what he has planned for you. Um, turn to Isaiah chapter 49. As over 700 years before Christ, Isaiah is beginning to weave these things together. Beginning in chapter 40, all these promises pointing to the Messiah, pointing to the millennium, pointing to the promises. We turn to chapter 49. This chapter, if you just pull out a verse or just pull it out of your Bible, is difficult to understand. But when you, when you look at the chapter, understanding what Isaiah is writing about, he's writing about from creation to the millennium, Jews and Gentiles. He has given prophecies of both, and they're coming together. Though he doesn't understand the church, he understands that God has a plan to reach them all. He writes in verse 1, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. For I was born, before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. This is Christ speaking. Christ is the servant, invariably, in Isaiah. It is either Christ or Israel. It's going to sound like it's both in this chapter, but he will explain as we come down through the chapter that all the way through, it is Christ speaking. The purpose of Christ, that people would be in Christ, that it would include the nations as well as Israel. Verse 2, He made my mouth, Christ speaking here, like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. So Christ himself talks about in the Gospels about the word of God the Father coming through him to the extent where his name is the word of God. So he has made me into a sharpened sword. So when we read verses like in your notes there, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It is talking about Christ, the Logos. So the Greek word in Hebrews 4.12 is Logos. The, one of the words we get from that is Logo. The Logo of God is Christ. What Christ look, what God looks like is Christ. The, the message is Christ, the sword is Christ, and it is a sharpened sword that Isaiah prophesied about, that Paul writes about in Hebrews, that cuts all the way through the dross into the soul of a human being to judge their thoughts, their choices, and their conclusions. 
And Christ has that power and his word has the power. 1 Peter 1.23, you are born again through the living word of God. So that the words or the word and the person who is the word are inseparable. So he says in Isaiah, he says, he made my mouth, the father did, like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. So you have this aspect of the sword and you have this aspect of an arrow that divide, that separate. Are you with me or not? I will go deep enough to know. I will give you my word, which will give you faith. I will ask for a response. You may verbalize it and you may not but I will know in your soul what your decision is. So in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is explaining these things to Gentiles, it says they were born again while he was still speaking. There wasn't a prayer, there wasn't a, a voice, there wasn't a response. They accepted it, and the word of God went in them and knew their response. So we think of the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. He's talking about the Father did this while I was in the womb. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the Word. Isaiah says... Christ says, he made me the word, the sharpened sword, the arrow in the quiver of his hand, that when I speak, I penetrate and I go deep. Reading on verse 3, Isaiah 49, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I, dis I will display my splendor. That's a confusing verse as to who the servant is until we get later in the verses. Verse 4, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now, the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him. So it's more clear in verse 5 that the servant cannot be Israel if the servant is going to bring Israel back. Verse 5 is a promise of the millennium, which we read throughout all of the prophets, when he brings Israel back. And gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. And now a promise that builds from Israel into the Gentiles. He says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So that's not Isaiah knowing there's going to be a church, but that's Isaiah speaking into what is coming when he says, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Paul explains that, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, the remnant, those who have made Christ Lord that are Israel, those I have kept 
I will bring back. So when he says things like all Israel will be saved, all of those who have chosen Christ, he has kept. He will bring them back. He will restore them and make all of his promises to them true. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. He's explaining in verses 14 through 16, which I wrote in your notes there, it has always been a global plan. It has not been um, pre-Israel, Israel church. It is a global plan to reach as many as possible. Verse 14 of Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So, we understand that Christ died for sinners. Paul is explaining here that more specifically Christ died for the church. That he is the Messiah, the foundation of the church. That when he went to the cross and hung on the cross, he thought of every individual who will ever live. Those who will say no and those who will say yes. And he is fully aware on the cross that he is purchasing the church. That he is destroying this wall of hostilities where Jews have nothing to do with Gentiles and Gentiles have nothing to do with Jews and we should stay separated. And years after Jesus has risen from the dead, proclaimed this body together, Peter is still struggling. What do I do with Gentiles? Paul is explaining here that Anything between Jews and Gentiles was fully destroyed at the cross. That he knew it, he was aware of it, he did it. There is nothing between Jews and Gentiles the moment that Christ expires on the cross. Anything that could separate them is gone. So there are things in their minds, there are prejudices, there's anti-Semitism, there's all of those things, but there's actually nothing anymore that keeps Jews and Gentiles separate. There's a, a psalm that is unnamed in the Bible, Psalm 67. It's a short psalm, but it's a psalm of the gospel to the nations at least a thousand years before Christ. So the psalm begins, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us taking from what Aaron said back in Exodus. And then the psalm, which seems to be written by David, says, um, so that your ways may be known on the earth. So that, that God and his plan will be known to all the nations. And then the writer says, may the peoples, plural, may the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity, and you guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. And then he speaks to Israel's plan. This is probably David 
a Jew from the tribe of Judah, understanding the gospel to the world and why he chose Israel. He says, the land yields its harvest. May God, our God, our God blesses us. May God bless us still. Why, David? So that all the ends of the earth will fear him. David understands that God has a plan to reach Gentiles. And he preaches that and he prays it in Psalm 67. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. You learn so much more from Chronicles about David's relationship to God. If I asked you who, who brought the supplies to build the temple, we would think Solomon. No, it was actually David. If we thought, why did Solomon ask God for wisdom? It was actually David telling him to ask God for wisdom. Um, when we see Solomon doing things, um, his father's influence on him comes through. So what has happened, it is about um, 966 B.C., almost a thousand years before Christ, Solomon builds this temple. It is now finished. And he's going to dedicate it. And he's going to have God speaking through him. And he builds this magnificent platform, verse 12. Then Solomon stood up before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. So this would have been a picture of Solomon, this magnificent temple, peace in Israel, really, for the first time. And he comes up and he raises his hands and he gets down on his knees and looks up to heaven. And everything that we are going to read from now on, he is in that position and he prays for Israel, and he prays for their obedience, and that this temple would be a focus in their life, because Christ is about to enter this temple. In this ceremony, Christ will enter the temple and stay there until Ezekiel chapter 11, when Judah goes into captivity. So he is praying for Israel, that God will listen to them, and then he is understanding from prophecy that they're going to disobey him and go to Babylon. And he says, if they pray from there, will you listen to them? And he does. And then he prays for Gentiles. This is probably God speaking through him in verse 32. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, just like we read from Paul, your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all peoples, Psalm 67, of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and, or, or excuse me, your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. So while there's a dividing 
seemingly wall between Jews and Gentiles, the people who are following God from Moses to David to Solomon understand it's not Israel, it's the world. It is Israel who is chosen to represent him. It is Israel who is given the covenants, given the laws, given this temple, given a residing place for Christ himself. But then he says to Christ himself, on your throne in this temple, when the foreigners pray, hear them, listen to them, respond to them. And God does, and he is in his plans. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We want to understand as we're, like I said, Ephesians 2.11 through Ephesians 4.16 is the doctrinal truth of the church in the Bible. And it is the number one mystery in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, as we read in chapter 3 and verse 6. We're just going to read it. We'll be there in a short amount of time. But in verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together of the promise in Christ Jesus. So he's already said in chapter 2, once you're in Christ, you're in his plan. His plan is the church. The church is Israel, Gentiles, every nationality, every ethnic background, all together as one body. And he is doing this in Chris's prayer for each family, each holy family. He wants to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God to the world, Ephesians 1. He wants human beings to experience as much as possible how wide, deep, Long and high is the love of Christ, and that can only happen in a body. So there are things which, um, when we pray, um, we see the purpose of that prayer in, in Ephesians 3. We see the purpose of gathering to pray when we see in Matthew where he says that where two or three are gathered, he's talking about prayer. So there are things that God does from heaven only in bodies, only in ecclesia, in the, the assembly, the gathering. So the, the primary purpose of God is to change me to be like Christ. The primary obedience to that change is to be in a church and to be part of that change. So the Holy Spirit's ultimate goal is to unify families of believers to a complete extent um, where they would work together. Turn to Galatians, just back one book, which he wrote several years earlier as his first letter. So he taps into this a little bit there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and all of these places that he writes this, in Christ, with Christ, into Christ, in Christ. So verse 26. So, in Christ Jesus, you who are children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And we won't get into this today. Romans 6 explains this in depth 
baptized into Christ is not a ceremony. It is not water. It is Christ confessed as Lord, believing in my heart, which out of the overflow of my heart is everything I do. So I do, I've made him Lord, I'm baptized into him. Once I'm baptized into Christ, Paul is explaining here that you are in his plan of the church. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Look at that last verse again. Going back to 2,000 years before Christ, when Abraham decided to follow Christ, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So these thousands of promises made to Israel, we are grafted into along with all of the kingdom promises that he gave us in Ephesians 1 and every other promise. It's not Jew or Gentile. It's not male or female. One of the things he is saying there is that if you're on the church, if you're in the church and there's someone in your church that has been elevated above the ground floor, you have a false church. Because as far as equity in the church, Jew, Gentile, male, female, there's only one floor. It's a ground floor. And when religion, one of the primary aspects of religion that is visible is when an individual is elevated above the rest of the church. Paul is saying, no, no, no. No Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female. So even though there are roles prescribed, for example, men and women, he is making clear men and women are equal in the church. There is not one above the other. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. A letter he is writing at the same time with Ephesians. Colossians being focused on the headship of the church of Christ. Ephesians being focused on the body of Christ, which is us. In Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read 9 through 15. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And this is kind of like the therefore of Ephesians uh, 2.11. Since you've already done that and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator, becoming like Christ, being transformed, verse 11, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen holy people, or excuse me, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another, if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, much like the end of Ephesians 4, verse 14. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. 
and be thankful. Because you are part of a body, it is, Paul would say in Romans, 100% of the time, as far as it's within your capability to bring peace, bring it. If you have to sacrifice yourself, lower yourself, step into things, whatever you have to do to bring peace, do it. Because you are part of a body of which Christ is the head. So if we step into that, the power that he's going to be talking about in the next three chapters in Ephesians becomes visible. Turn back there to Ephesians 2 and verse 17. Paul continually making clear what Christ made clear, that the invitation is for everyone. Verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For, the, for through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So Paul has been, since chapter 1, explaining the path for a Jew, the path for a Gentile. He preached preached peace to you who were far away, that's the Gentiles, and to those who were near, that's the Jews. Jesus himself was explaining this in parables. If we go to Matthew chapter 22, we see the parable of the, the banquet which pictures heaven, and we go there and, and understand from his parable that he's offering salvation to Jews, and to Gentiles all throughout his ministry. In fact, Gentiles often responded more readily to his offer than Jews did. So he teaches this parable of a, of a wedding banquet explaining his invitation to everyone. Chapter 22 of Matthew and verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited, those who had been invited, meaning Israel, to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who had been invited, meaning the Jews, that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened cattle, and have butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them, much like they did John the Baptist. Verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. But those invited, those I invited, did not deserve to come. They're deserving of wrath. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. Verse 9. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. This is his parable of the gospel now going out to every Gentile, every Samaritan, every person that will come. Verse 10. So, to the servant, so the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there 
who was not wearing wedding clothes. This is a picture of a religious person who hasn't made Christ Lord. Verse 12, he asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So Ephesians 1.4, you are chosen in heaven before the creation of the world, knowing that you have made Christ Lord. We read in Sunday school the, the, the narrow gate and the wide gate that religious people in large part will find the broad road that leads to destruction, that, that we have our beliefs, we will enter and to God's heaven by the path that our religion has decided. And Jesus describes that person as a person trying to get into heaven without wedding clothes. And he says that the banquet hall becomes full, Romans eleven twenty five. when the full number of Gentiles come in, he says the banquet becomes full when the Gentiles receive the gospel. So the Jews, those who had been invited, along with the Gentiles who are far away, Ephesians chapter 2, 17 and 18, are both invited to the same banquet. As we go back, actually go to John chapter 10, as he is explaining this in John's gospel, the same thing in a different moment. John chapter 10 Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, for I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not in this sheep pen. He's talking about Gentiles, those who are far away, Ephesians 2, those who had not been invited. Matthew 22, he says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must, also, I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The disciples would have struggled with that. They would have struggled to understand it and even to want to understand that. But they would have understood that he was talking about sheep that weren't Jews. And he says he must bring them in also. And his primary person to use in doing that was the Apostle Paul. If we go back to Ephesians 2, verse 19. Ephesians 2 and verse 19. Paul writes, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens on an equal plane with Jews, with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So the same thing he said to Peter, on this rock, the rock that he's the Messiah, the Anointed prophet, priest, and king, the church will be built and will stand on Christ. And he says to the Gentiles here, you're not foreigners anymore. You're not outsiders accepted in. You are fellow members. 
you're on an equal plane. No Jew, Gentile, male, female, everyone is on an equal place in Christ, in the church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. He talks about the, the working of the Holy Spirit and how this comes to fruition. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, instead, instead of being immature, instead of being not unified, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to be, come, in every, every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, as the foundation, as the rock, as the cornerstone, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. So that's the work he's explaining in verse 10 of chapter 2. To do the good works he planned in advance for us to do. Notice that when Paul says the good works which he planned in advance for us to do, the next verse takes us into the church. That his plan is in a family of believers where each family derives its name for this reason. Therefore, understand, if God is going to be effective in your individual life, he's going to do it in a church. That's where he's going to train you, change you, transform you, and use you. And when you are trained in the church, reaching the world will be a natural outcome. But we live in a country, for example, where it's flipped. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm just, I, church isn't really for me. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Christian wherever I go. True statement, but misused. If you are equipped to reach the world, it happened in church. If you understand how wide, how deep, how long, and how high the love of Christ is that came to you in church. If the manifold wisdom of God is known in Mendota, Illinois, outside these walls, it's going to come to them through a church. So that happens as Christ, the chief cornerstone, from him everything builds out and up, and we are bound together like ligaments as each individual does its work. If each individual doesn't do its work, however many individuals that is, the church is weaker and weaker and weaker. And you can be sure that the next generation of that church will be weaker, if it even survives. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, as he is talking to them, writing to them, again during this same imprisonment in Rome, explaining that this citizenship that is not earthly, Remember, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's true of us if we follow Christ. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. In chapter 3 and verse 20 of Philippians, Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And this transformation happens in the church. It happens when we 
read this book, we understand its application, we apply it, he changes us. And the fullness of change happens in a body. There is a uniqueness to his lordship being in the church, the head of the church, Colossians 1.18, and the place where he brings understanding and revelation to us and to the world through us. So we go back to Ephesians 2, last two verses in this chapter. The same things that we just read in Ephesians 4 and Philippians 3, verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together. In Christ, in other words, this building of a body of believers is joined together as the cornerstone, as the rock, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul is explaining at the end of this chapter that as we grow together, as we're bound together as ligaments, as each part does its work, we are actually growing as a body. We're growing into and up to what he has planned for us to be. And when we grow into that, Paul says that in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So when he says at the end of Revelation 1 and the beginning of Revelation 2 that Christ's position during the church age is among the churches that have lampstands. In other words, churches that have grown into a place where the Spirit of God lives. In other words, if you have a place where a scattered amount of people have the Holy Spirit living within them, but the church doesn't grow into what Paul is describing, then you don't have a lampstand. You grow into a place where the Spirit of God will dwell. So he lives in us and he unifies us to prepare a place where Christ has a lampstand. So he holds the messengers, he says in Ephesians 2.1, and he walks among the lampstands. The lampstands are the bodies of believers that are growing together by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that reality forms a place for a temple for Christ to dwell. So we are described both as the temple as individuals and the temple as a church. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians 6, Paul is talking about this a few years earlier, and as I've said, Ephesians, the, the, the readers receiving this letter would have already had been through Romans and First and Second Corinthians. Paul is speaking to a troubled church here. We just pick it up near the end of the chapter, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So that's the individual dwelling place 
of the Holy Spirit in a believer. Turn back to chapter 3, where he is explaining, as he's anticipating the rapture, which you've probably noticed he's done that in several places today, he's explaining that as an individual who was bought with a price, who is a temple in whom the, the Spirit of God dwells, your work, your responsibility is to build a church that is the same. So in chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul writes, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So he begins where we begin here in verse 9, that we are God's field, we are his building. So I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. He resides in me as a follower of Jesus Christ. But when we, in Ephesians 2, 20 and 21, when we come together, each part does its work and we grow into what he has called us to be, a place where the Spirit dwells, that is God's field, God's building. It is not the ceiling and these walls, it is an assembly of people moving in the same direction following Christ. Verse 10. By the grace, we talked about that last week, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. He's not the foundation, but he's building on the foundation. So a wise builder is a title that applies to him as an apostle, the first generation building on Christ. And someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. Again, every part doing its work, each one building with care. If you're in a church and you're an active participant, every person is involved. Every person is growing. Every person is loving one another. And we are becoming the place where the Spirit of God not only dwells in individuals, but where he resides, where a lampstand has been put by Christ. Verse 11 for no one, here we are again, can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The only rock in the Bible is Jesus Christ. Old Testament and New Testament. Verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, si gold silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, capital D, the rapture, will bring, to light, bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If, it, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet be saved, even though, even though one, only as one escaping through the flames. Understand there as, uh, I'll read two more verses, don't you, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temples, again they're plural, a body of believers, and that God's spirit dwells in your midst, in other words, Ephesians chapter 2, a place where the Holy Spirit dwells, where he's actively unifying and making mature a body of believers. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Understand this context that helps us to understand the rapture. That 
we, we have building tools given to us when we are born again. If we use those tools to build, then we will be given rewards. We will be given things that we don't deserve, but we will be given for using them. If we have tools and we're just an observer, we're just in the audience, our tools and the things we have done will burn up. Understand that this whole context in 1 Corinthians 3 is in church. It's all about building. It is all with the realization that God's plan from cross to rapture is that the world is changed by local bodies. That's his plan. We've already read today that he hung on the cross for that plan, for the church. And it is no wonder that in a consumer country where I'll, I'll, I'll go if I'm up to it today, I'll participate if it, if it seems right on this time and at this opportunity, we don't understand that his plan is 100% participation, building together, involved deeply, creating a place where the manifold wisdom of God is known to the world. So while it's easy for us to look at Israel and say, boy, they sure dropped the ball, the church is doing the same thing. Israel came to the place where they believed, I'm an Israelite. I've got Abraham. I've got Moses. I've got the covenants. That's all I need. So as the days preceding the, the full destruction of the temple that Solomon built, right up to the day it was torn down, they're saying, we have the temple of the Lord, the message of the Lord. We're Israelites. And then they were destroyed. And today we have everyone saying, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. Are you deeply involved in the church? No, but... And he goes as far in closing this chapter to say, by the way, if you're that divisive person, if you're that troublemaker in my church, I will destroy you. So this picture is, I want to bless you. I want to lavish, pour on you, demonstrate to you. Romans 12, 2 essentially says that if you do what I say, I will show you what I mean. There's a sense in which he's saying, I dare you to try following me and expect to be disappointed. And he is saying in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, and Ephesians 4, you follow me in church. You find a way to love one another, serve one another, and then watch what I do. See how thy kingdom comes on earth just as it is in heaven by coming together in a unified body with everything in common, one purpose, one Lord, one God. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this access to your plan. 
you've put the tools in our hands. You've put the location in our lives. You've made your offer, your promises, and your prophecies clear. And in my case, um, you've given me a wonderful group of people to learn this with. Knowing that there are many places on earth where an individual might so desire to be a ligament bound together and there's no one to bind with. Lord, as the song says, let this be the church that realizes the tie that binds. In Jesus' name, amen.